to the Clan McKenzie podcast. Glad to have him with us this week in the Clan McKenzie podcast. The returning Caberfay, John Cromarty our clan chief of the Mackenzies. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to have you in. This week, we thought it'd be interesting to discuss, uh, you know, a lot of times people talk about the castle and they talk about the interior, the exterior. We thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about the grounds, the land, the first thing that you see as you're coming up to the castle. Providing you don't follow your sat-nav and end up by the sawmill, uh, and you come up by the front drive, the first thing you'll see, um, obviously, is Little Gate Lodge on the left, there's the gates, and then you will see an avenue of limes and sycamores that were largely planted, gosh, latter part of the 18th century, about 1790, a lot of them. Um, and we've replaced quite a few as well, but there's some very fine trees there, actually. Um, and that is about, I suppose, the avenue must be, if you go all the way to the castle, it's almost half a mile. Wow. So the grounds, what were they like originally, even before the Mackenzies got there? What are the lands like here? Oh, heavens. I mean, going back a long way, um, you know, to Viking times, uh, you would have had... The front lawn obviously wasn't a lawn. Uh, there wouldn't have been the trees or there would have been the Caledonian forest. But um, I suspect they built it on a clear space because it's a mound. It's a natural mound of rock. Um, and it would have had a wooden structure. There would have been no front drive. Um, the front drive is... We don't quite know what date it is because the original drive to and from the castle... Um, was off to the side you know where the ticket booth is now um there's a line of sycamore there and that is where the original when i say original several hundred years old actually original drive went um looking at the maps in the castle um which were drawn round about 1760 uh, on average it shows the front drive, but it shows it as a grass walkway. Um, and the drive that goes off to the east from the ticket booth area, uh, obviously there wasn't a ticket booth then, you understand that. Um, <laughs> Probably would not that, welcome warmly necessarily, right? If, you, if you're on your way to the castle at that time. Uh, this is true. Um, <laughs> and that would have joined what was called the common highway to Dingwall. You've talked about the the sort of the Norse origins in this map. I, I know we talked about talking about the lands. Explain to this about this map. I noticed that on your website on the castle.org website. Yeah, there are several maps. Um, they're all drawn uh, by the Hanoverian surveyors after um the highlands were occupied uh, 
due to the failure of the 1745 rising. Um, and after Culloden, as you probably know, there was all sorts of very unpleasant things happened. Um, but one of the better things that happened was uh, the first really accurate uh, mapping of what the government of that day called His Majesty's Annexed Estates. Um, and these were really organised by a couple of surveyors, um, John Leslie and Peter May, who had a big team, of course, and they went all round the annexed estates in Scotland. It must have taken them years and years. And these were actually probably some of the world's first truly accurate maps. They were all triangulated um, and it must have taken them ages. And the maps are surprisingly accurate, um, even by today's standards. If you took a GPS fix on something, you'll find it actually fits on the map extremely well. Wow, that's awesome. Very good. Thanks for sharing that. So your earliest memories um, as a child there on the grounds of Castle Loud, uh, obviously kind of taking care of the of the land, taking care of the grounds is one of the key parts of the family living there, right? So so what's been sort of the changes that you've observed over the years just in your brief period of time there? Um, trees get bigger, some fall, um, some don't. Um, I think this, we've done a lot of groundwork uh, in the last few years here. Um, and I think we've managed to get relatively accurate dates for a lot of the trees, roughly their heights as they stand today. Um, we've done a lot of planting. The oldest tree is a sweet chestnut planted um for Marie de Guise, Queen of France and Scotland, who was Mary, Queen of Scots' mother. And I wouldn't say that she necessarily planted them, but uh, John of Calin, who was then chief of the clan, probably did. Um, round about 1553 or to 1556, um, it has to be in that sort of date. Um, and there's only one surviving, and that is the... Well, it's a wonderful tree. Uh, it's one of Britain's great trees. Uh, it's been on television and it's had some tree surgery done to sort of what's called lifted skirts. Um, and it's just a fantastic tree. Um, it's, yeah, one of the great trees of Britain, one of the hundred best, really, probably. Um, and of course, we've got these, not of course, but we have two large sequoias. Um, the one on the uh, west side is probably just short of 60 metres. And the one on the right, on the east side, just the other side of this back drive, is um, actually slightly less high than that. It's about probably five or six metres less, possibly a bit more, actually. I don't know. Um, but they got a massive girth and they were quite new. They're 1850s. And wow. um, to reach that sort of height in such a short space of time either means that <laughs> they're growing too fast or it probably means actually they've got several hundred years of leaf mould and they're on oil shale, which is, well, quite an organic sort of rock, actually. <laughs> um, and that might provide some very good nutrients. Um, they, all the trees here seem 
remarkably happy, if you can call it a tree, happy, uh, <laughs> large and healthy um, so far. We do have things like Dutch elm disease, which has killed all, well, not all, but 90% of the elms. And there's also like ash dieback and lots of diseases that have been imported through timber. Mm. So how did this, how did sequoias wind up in Scotland? Because in the roughly the mid 19th century, um, there was, well, when Britain's empire per se was at its height, there was a great, uh, a great number of professional, I would say, yeah, they were professional collectors, literally going around the world. And this, amongst many other estates, managed to get hold of seed. Mm. Uh, but we do know that the sequoias came from a specific grove in the Redwoods um, area of California. And... Um, I can't name you the actual grove, but it is written down somewhere, somewhere. And um, it was planted in 1853, or was it four? But never mind, one of the two. And it was from seed. And it's grown to be really quite a size in that short space of time. Who knows? I mean, sequoias can live to several thousand years old if in certain areas, we have no idea how much bigger they'll get, uh, but they are, I think a tree will continue growing in height, providing it can get water to the top. Yeah. When it can't get water to the top, it'll stop. Um, but it's certainly expanding in girth now. They both are. So I would imagine at some point in the future, the back drive will get squeezed to quite a narrow width. <laughs> That's a thought for another generation. Uh, but we've got bigger trees. We've got the biggest trees in terms of height. Um, are a couple of Douglas firs. Uh, one of them's over 200 foot and the other's pushing it. I would say it's just 198 feet or something. Um I, I always use the 60 meter benchmark. Mm. Um, whether they'll grow any taller, again, it depends on the water supply. They're close by as well. Are we people so had... sorry? Are people, I was going to say, are, are people very surprised when they come there and see these, the, this massive uh, array of different uh, trees? Well, North American trees, I suppose. It just happened. Yeah, but there's quite a lot of them in Scotland. I mean, they're not unusual, they're just bigger than most. Yeah. Um, I mean, the tallest tree that I'm aware of is at really Glen, which is actually not far from here. And that's a Douglas, but it's in a grove and that's about 225 or 230 foot, but it's very thin. Yeah. Um, whereas ours have got massive trunks to them. Um, it doesn't mean they'll grow much taller, but it does mean that they seem to be quite happy. Um, in fact, we have a, very nice Douglas, far too close to the house. It was planted, as I said, around about 1850. But the um, new section, if you can call it, the new section of the building at the back uh, is about 1911. It's very contemporary with Summerstrath Beffer as well, which goes back to 1850 or so. Um, that tree was there before the castle, so we've had to reduce its height by 10 metres. It was 190 foot. 
uh, and now we've taken 30 foot off it, um, which I think is a great shame, but if it had fallen, it would have fallen kaplunk right on top of the house. So um, perhaps it was the right thing to do. <laughs> I think it was. <laughs> On a lot of these trees, you're kind of glossing over the idea of how significant they are in sort of, you know, the UK's recognition of them. I noticed that uh, the, the two trees, the, the Spanish or the sweet chestnut trees from the 1550s, they're listed in the 100 best trees of Scotland. So if, if Scotland's got so many trees, to be of the 100 best is pretty significant. Well, it's also one of the, well, our ex-Queen's green canopy trees, now the King's green canopy trees. There was only 70 of those chosen throughout Britain, and the sweet chestnut is one of them. That's very um, impressive. Which is, it's got a little plaque to say that it's, it's, it's just, you know, obviously somebody went round, quite a few people went round to trees in Britain and thought it was a way to um, celebrate our, our late Queen's life um so yeah which is nice yeah and the sequoia tree was noted as as you mentioned it's it's girth i guess you could say as um supposedly the largest in the world at its latitude is how one one uh describes it uh yes it's quite a boast that when you consider we're 58 and a half north and that most trees at that latitude are about 20 foot. It's not such a big boast after all. Um, <laughs> we, you know, uh, perhaps a slight exaggeration. Perhaps. Um, but, you know, if you go to the, I've worked in Northern Canada as a, a geologist in the, in the, in the tundra regions. Um, and I can assure you there's hardly any trees at all. In fact, there were none. Um, but I mean, the tiger belt going all the way around the top of the world, if you like, um and that's a little bit further north but um you know most of the trees would be much smaller much much smaller um, i think it's a sort of accident of climate uh we're very sheltered here uh from west winds which is the prevailing winds so um i think that's probably the reason but i mean there are a lot of trees here almost at the same height i mean lots of 50 meter plus trees um so long as you like the color green, you'd be happy here. <laughs> That's true. Well, you get a lot of rain, I guess, to help keep that along, right? We have a bit of rain as well, yeah. so I've been told, yes. <laughs> so uh, a couple other points I wanted are uh, different topics there I, I mentioned was with regard to the hanging tree. I don't know about this. Oh, the great hanging tree. Yeah, that actually fell down, I think, in the 1930s. Oh, wow. I, um apparently narrowing narrowly missing my late father or so he keeps saying or did say um probably true possibly true a slight bit of hyperbole to it um <laughs> it was um i don't know it was an ash could have been an ash um but it was at the bottom of the front lawn mm. um quite near the white gate actually and there's a, a rowan um now sort of marking its spot um, there's still a little bit of wood left and that was used for summary justice uh, uh, if you can call it that um, in the old days so that, is there... that, the, I mean the power of pit and gallows alas disappeared in 1746 uh, after the last rising and 
it's a shame it can't be applied to certain politicians, but still, there you go. Um, and it meant that, you know, there were no proper jails up here. Um, so most folk, minor felons, would have been fined. Um, there were far fewer capital offences in Scotland than there were in England, for instance, which is, I suppose, something positive. Um but I mean, in the really old days, we have a dungeon. People would have been put into the dungeon and probably ransomed. Yeah. And they may have been political prisoners or captured in yet another clan battle. Um, but I think the hanging tree ceased to hang people um, after 1746. And okay. I have no history of it. You've you know, not put people. anyone up there. So that's good. not that I'm aware of. No. Yeah. <laughs> not that you're aware of. It's a good way to get out of it. Uh, that's true. Okay. Um, the Countess Well in the Rose Garden. Oh, right. Um, the Countess's Well is, I suppose, a significant puddle, really. Mm. Um, it's to the northwest of the castle, there's a little walk we've made to it and beyond it. Um, it's simply, I think it was designed, as far as I know, for Anne Hay Mackenzie, um, Countess of Cromarty, uh, in the mid uh, 19th century. And it has a, a little, basically there are a lot of springs, lots and lots of springs. Um, and it's one of the more, um, if you like, better springs, more, it's more consistent. Though I have noticed it drying up in recent years, but it's going mm. fine now. And it produces a little burn. Um, and it's got a sort of a stone plinth with a bobble on top, a ball, um, which we've had to cement on in case children sort of push it over, I suppose. Oh. Um and, but it is like a hole in the ground with a bit of water bubbling up. And it's not exactly deep, but it's very, very clear and clean water, which is useful. Um, and the walk goes past our biggest tree, well, the biggest in height, uh, one of the Douglases. It's got pretty massive girth, too. Um, so that's the Countess's, well, yeah, 19th century, like a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, the Rose the, Garden, does that, does that go with it, too? Uh, the Rose Garden is a relatively modern construction. Again, 19th century. Might have gone back earlier. There is, there's a sundial, sort of mid 18th century. So there could have been something there beforehand. Again, there's no written record that I'm aware of. As you're and talking, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I believe there was. We've got a drawing of the castle under the rose garden. Doesn't really show a rose garden, but it does show a small cottage hmm. where it was, or near near where it was, which could have been a gardener's cottage. I don't know. It was all fairly homespun, I think. Do you have a lot of records as far as that? Because you know you've got the the ancient maps there in the castle. This sort of each family over the years that every generation keep kind of record on what was happening on the grounds. Do you guys have something like that, like a book or a, a map that documents these changes? Intermittently. Yeah. Um, most of the Cromarty papers are about business and politics and that sort of stuff. Um, 
rather than what was planted yeah. and who did it. Sure. Uh, that really didn't truly start until the 19th century when there was, I suppose, the time uh, to do that sort of thing. You need a peaceful situation for that. Yeah. Um, if uh, the McDonald's or the McLeod's are herring over the hill towards you, you're not too concerned about keeping your tree diary up to date. You know, <laughs> <That's suppose. true. laughs> no. Helping um, the environment as you're fighting for your life. Yes, it's probably... That, that's right. Yeah, I must remember that. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, yeah. Excellent point. Um, I guess one other curiosity I have, uh, as you're mentioning about the the Countess Well in the spring. So what's what's your water supply to the castle? What do you what do you it's, what do you have? How do you have set up for your drinking water? Do you have a giant well? What do you have? No, no, we're on the main supply. Alas, okay. Um, uh, it's because the spring water is too intermittent mm. um, to be truly reliable. Yes, we could use it. We'd have to pipe it in uh, again. There were several springs that were tapped in the past, and it wouldn't be impossible to do the same again. Yeah. But we don't. Not yeah. at the moment. Okay. Very good. What about the monuments? Uh, again, going back to sort of the Pictish history of, of the grounds and in the beginning of the castle. Um, I know there's at least one very prominent monument that stands out there called the Eagle Stone. Can you talk about That's that? That's right. The Great Eagle Stone, which is... Pictish. Um, it's nearer Strathpeffer than it is to us. Okay. Um, but it's still part of the designated landscape area. Um, it's a remarkable chunk of schist with an eagle carved on it. Um, and I believe it has been moved from its original site. Oh. Because after um Yet another battle in 1490-something oh, when the Mackenzies um, beat the, the Monroes near Knockfarrell. Yet another uh, Mackenzie victory. Hooray, hooray. But we're all yes. friends now, I may add. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was moved. Now, why it was moved, I don't know. But um, the bronze seer had noted this stone, the great sort of uh, prophet um, who existed in the early 18th century, late 17th century. Um, and he prophesied that if it fell three times, um, ships would anchor to it. Well, <laughs> it's a good prophecy, this one, because indeed it did. And it's now cemented in place. And a ship did anchor to it in the first war. Now, how would that be when it's about 40 metres or 50 metres above sea level? Well, it was an airship and it had dropped its mooring line, which got tangled around the stone. Interesting. So a ship did moor to it, um, much to everyone's relief. Uh, unless, of course, there's another big flood coming, but you never know. Um, so, yeah, that's that. That That is the most important standing stone in the sort of grounds if you like there's another smaller one in the tree walk which has no inscription on it it's just there um it's a standing stone all right but we don't know its history okay um but if you went up onto 
the slopes above the heights of Achtonid um, at an elevation of about 400 metres, you would find a whole lot of cup and ring marks, which meant that Iron Age folk uh, had settled there, um, possibly even earlier. Um, there's a vitrified fort on Knock Farrell, which is Iron Age. Um, people tend to live on the lower hills because the lower ground would be full of a Caledonian forest, which would have been equally full of bears and wolves and possibly brigands of some sort or another. Who knows? It was safer to live on hilltops which were free of trees. Yeah. So that's what they did. Um, so there's a lot of prehistoric remains, but very little has been really done to solve some of the problems. No one really knows who the picks are, for instance. Yeah. So do you have any more documentation on on the picks that you've been able to provide no. from anybody? No. No, I don't think many people do. Uh, the Tarbot Discovery Center near Port Mahomet is probably as wised up as any institution is um, uh, on Pictish remains. Uh, but no, no, there's no Rosetta Stone to actually, you know, decipher. Um, so I'm not sure if it's Ogham or, um, it might be Ogham actually, right? It's, it's way before hieroglyphics anyway. It sort of scratches, which, you know, verticals. Um, and as far as I'm aware, no one has translated them. So a future project for someone that uh, wants to... Spend a hell of a lot of time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to the bottom of it and we'll get back with you on this. Uh, yes, uh, okay. Translation, the Rosetta Stone of uh, yeah. language. Very good. That's interesting. You know, there really isn't a lot of people that talk about that. I mean, I have a book on it. Um, yeah. But... I guess I didn't pick up anything that I thought was revolutionary with what I read. Yeah, we don't even know really where they came from, probably Eastern Europe. Um, but they were the original inhabitants, but there may have been people before them too. Because uh, remember, at that stage, there was still a land bridge to Europe. The English Channel hadn't opened up. Mm -hmm. So um, early man had crossed over to Britain, England, and almost certainly gone up to Scotland. Um, climate has come and gone. It's been warmer, it's been wetter, it's been colder, it's been drier, it's been all sorts. Um, so there's no doubt that we're not helping it at the moment. But in the past, geologically speaking, the climate's changed lots of times, as you yeah. probably know. Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of ups and downs through history, hasn't there? Um, so yeah. what, what would you say with regards to the surprise of people when they come to the castle? What is the first thing do you think that they're overly impressed by as they're as they're driving, driving down the lane or walking down the lane? I, I, I think what people really like is that the family are still living in this building. It's not a pastiche building. Yeah. Um, quite regardless of what's in it or the landscape around it. Obviously, we do get folk groups of folk who are really interested in the landscape much more than the castle. Uh, and so they get, but they're mainly arborealists or, or arboriculturalists, I should say. Um, 
but we, you know we get all sorts but by and large if you look at the visitors book which we're on sort of number two or three now i can't remember the comments invariably it's a real castle and great that the family are still there um which i think is perhaps one of the more important aspects of it rather than picking out any one item or object which you know would be salient do people have to pay to come out and, and, and tour the grounds or maybe do do people come out and do photo shoots and things like that? That's very common around here. We, we've yeah, no, we've basically got when we're we've got open days, public open days, as you probably know. Yes. And that's ten pounds and that's castle and grounds. Um if people want to do grounds only, it's for a fiver. So yeah. it's not exactly an enormous amount. Um we have a river walk which is open all the year round for anyone. And we do encourage uh, folk to walk up to the White Gate on any day of the year, but we're kind of keen that they don't take cars, <laughs> unless on open days, because the damage caused by driving too fast up the drive is such that we're now going to have to spend a rather a large sum of money to get the drive repaired um alas however yeah um and i suppose that just goes with the territory really yeah but it's important to know so thanks for sharing that for people that get a chance to drive up there you know they'll they'll reconsider perhaps if they hear this and they'll think about sort of what what goes into the the work of the of the groundskeepers as far as making sure that stuff stays intact without getting too destroyed so that's good to know well, this is yeah this is true um but um, and when we had lockdown, we just let locals walk wherever they wanted to, because it was often the only place they could walk. Yeah. Well, there was actually a lot up here, but it was good to just open up completely and just say, come on, just enjoy enjoy the grounds because <laughs> there was no one else, you know. Yeah. Um, let's hope we don't have that again. Yeah. One other thing that was interesting, I had um, Andrew Grant McKenzie on, on the podcast a while back. He was talking about Shinty uh, taking place nearby. Sort of down below, there's a, a big opening yeah. field, I understand. Yeah, the, there's playing fields. There's the Cabafay Shinty Club, which I may add my eldest son, Colin, plays in the second team. Uh, I think he's considered quite old at 35 to be playing now. <laughs> Classic, isn't it? Um, <laughs> the young lad. Um, uh, both my boys play shinty. Uh, hardly boys. The young men play shinty. Uh, but Alistair, who lives in Rome, obviously there's a slight shortage of shinty pitches in Rome, as you can well imagine. It's not exactly an Italian game. But the Cabafay Shinty Club have been there for 125, four years more um and their fortunes go up and down a bit but they've got a senior team and a, a second team um and sometimes they're very very good indeed it's great watching them they're they're a super i think they're a super lot they really are and they've been they're just part and parcel of the of the area but we've also got um the ross county um cricket club which have oh, been there since 195 or something um and they've got very good cricket ground um so the shinty and cricket take place and of course the highland games take place on the shinty pitch um once a year so that's very accessible to 
to you where you are exactly then yeah it's really at like the bottom of the drive on the east side uh but it, it's all part of the designated landscape there's some wonderful trees surrounding uh the shinty pitch and the cricket um so they've got very nice grounds to play in yeah it you know it's surprisingly popular it's become played in several areas in england now there's a good london kamenach as there is in cornwall and these are highlands highlanders have gone down there lots in london obviously and they form teams and it's coming increasingly popular uh, because i mean you know there are rules and if you follow them and you're not just being agricultural um so to speak, but slightly more professional. There's no reason why people should get hurt. Um, but it, in the heat of the moment, who knows? There's always the potential. That's what makes it exciting. There's always the potential. <laughs> exactly. Very but, good. Aye, yes. Anyway. Anyway, yeah. that's fantastic, though. I appreciate hearing about that. So real fast, we just have a little bit of time left. Could you tell us a little bit about what when open days are then for the castle? Well, the open days are all on the website. Okay. Um www.castleout.org.uk yes um and we also do private tours or group tours. we have a lot of cruise liners we've got about 18 or 19 lined up this year that's the same as last year cruise liners have become really really popular okay yeah i mean apart from our open days I think we've got 29 this year um we also do what we call private tours or group tours. Uh, a lot of those, we have 18 or 19 um, cruise liners coming along. People in groups of up to 20. Um, and you've probably heard of Jonathan McCall from Dingwall. Jonathan is a real right-hand man and he's been helping me for some years now. And we do the tours together, either individually or if it's a big group. We've got one or two big groups this year. We'll do it together um ideally uh i mean all the money goes to the charitable trust the clan mckenzie charitable trust which is basically to help the castle and its grounds um and it was set up by the revenue for that reason um ideally in in, in a perfect world i would spend if i had it three hundred thousand pounds to make a really nice apartment in the old part which would air and fire the building especially the top part um or perhaps we need a nice legacy or something, I don't know. Um, but it is surprisingly difficult um, accruing sufficient funds to do everything that you'd like to do. And I think one of the acorns, that, I mean, the, the real thing that would make things grow extremely well would be an apartment, which could be let out for most of the year. Um, it would bring in a good income, which would go straight back to the charitable trust, which would mean that you'd had a, a warm, lived-in top part of the building, which would make such a difference. We've we've done, almost finished, all what I would call um, phase one repairs. We've, the roof's been replaced. We've put new chimney heads on. There's still one to do. Um, there's a battlement to be rebuilt because I'm not very happy with the big one at the front. Um, but we are getting there, but it, it absorbs money. And running a castle, and I think I wrote once in the Clan Mackenzie magazine, um, society magazine of the UK, that is, 
breastfeeding a dinosaur is the best mm. description I know of trying to keep a place like that. And it's not an original phrase. It, I've told it by an Irishman. It would have to be an Irishman. Of course so it would be. Have, <laughs> you know, who else would come up with something like that? And he said, you know, you know I, he was absolutely right. That's what it, it is like, breastfeeding a dinosaur. Um, but it's a very lovely dinosaur. It's not too big as dinosaurs go. Um, so it's just about manageable. Um, but yeah, a sort of a nice legacy would be wonderful because that would mean that we would, we would have really saved the building forevermore. Yeah. So you're talking, about, tourism... Sorry, you're talking about an apartment then that would actually be part of the castle? That's right. Actually, in the old part, the historic so, part. So people could come and stay at the castle. That's right. That would be exactly the idea. Um, but, you know, it has a price tag of approximately 300K. New plumbing, new wiring, heating. The actual making the apartment is actually... <laughs> not the difficult bit is the difficult bit is getting the services sorted out mm. i mean we don't even know <laughs> where the current septic tank is for instance we have a rough idea because there's a great vent pipe growing out of a mature tree one can only assume <laughs> that is where the septic tank is but you know nobody dares to interfere <laughs> sleeping dogs and all that um but yeah, I mean that that is the sort of long term dream, really. Because mm -hmm. um, then I feel the place would be, in some ways, independent of. I mean that means that whoever lives here, whether it's myself or my son or whatever, and his sons and so on and so forth, they wouldn't have to spend most of their life firefighting or trying to make sure that everything's in good shape they can have do a job of their own for instance um so that would be a huge burden released of course you'd have to run the apartment but if you had sufficient funds you could employ people to clean it etc yes. you know you could do it as a business and it's a charitable trust so it wouldn't suffer from tax so basically have you decided to go forward with this idea? Is this still just an idea stage? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, I mean, I would like to finish off uh, the really critical bits, like the finishing off phase one, which is there are two small chimney heads, which we never managed to do last time. They are minor, but they should be replaced. That means scaffolding, taking them down, complete new stone and code eight lead or code six anyway. Um, and the big walkway or battlement which is very prominent at the front of the house definitely lets in water uh, i know the walls are eight foot 2.4 meters thick at the bottom but they taper towards the top and so if you've got a structure like a battlement which is obviously flat bottomed uh, and if water is penetrating into the stonework that isn't good um and in many ways it should be uh, rebuilt um like the east one was which was actually the worst that's fantastic now uh so it's all a matter of stuff which okay you could say well it should have been done hundreds of you know 100 years ago but people had different priorities there were two world wars shoved in between and let's hope there isn't a third one and you know it's worth trying to get your building completely watertight as far as you possibly can first, and then you can start thinking about what you want to do inside. 
And that will be phase two. But we'll need either some very generous grants or some very generous people, I think, uh, to, <laughs> to, to do that. Yeah. Well, I think there's avenues that you can that you can you know go to to help get that kind of money raised. Um, I can't believe it wouldn't be possible to get it going. So I I agree with you. I do, and I think um, that is it is nothing is impossible, uh, and it it's not like we're talking millions of pounds here. It really is quite a, a you know on the scheme of things quite reasonable. I think so. I mean, and it's a win for everybody. It's a win for you. Um, in that it's helping preserve the castle, taking a lot of the extra workload off of you, but then also for the people, for the, you know, anybody, particularly the Mackenzies or people that are interested in Mackenzies, being able to actually stay at the castle. Uh, what an incredible opportunity that would be. Um, that they're you know. Right now they're getting the opportunity to stay in Fairburn, which I know is drawing a lot of interest. And uh, to be able to yeah. stay in Castle Loud, how how exciting that would be. It would be fantastic, but it would it would also do the building so much good. Yeah, it really would. Okay, well, we will look at um, um, doing, you know, thinking of ideas to see what we can do to help. Uh, I think everybody could lend a hand. I think okay, we could Jared, that's always it's always appreciated. Great, great. Well, well Cabrefay, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you on the podcast, and uh, we look forward to talking again. Maybe next time we can talk a little bit more specifically about the castle. Sure, not a problem. The Clan Mackenzie podcast is produced by Jared Smart.